Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I am Ryan Beach. And on today's episode, I am in the home. This is part of my Nashville tour. I am in the home of Nick Lofer, is it? Lofer. Lodge just a joke. I, I just... like that one. <laughs> Lofer. That's what we're kind of doing. We're loafing around. <laughs> uh, he has kindly invited me into his home and uh, is willing to talk to me about... Uh, he is the trombonist for Toby Keith, and he also is in a maniacal four breasts. I guess trombone quartet would be, I guess you are brass players, but you don't have to say brass when there's just trombones, right? Sometimes there was a tuba. Or, sometimes, or, a tuba. sometimes there was a piano. Sometimes there was a egg shaker. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Well, I have a lot to learn. It's, it's Foot tambourines like. too. <laughs> nice. So. Uh, and so this is really cool. Um, this got set up by Karen, your wife. Mm-hmm. And this is cool for me because I just asked her, who else should I contact? And And she said, uh, you could contact my husband, Nick, and these other people, Ryan and stuff. And I was like, cool. She's like, don't worry, I'll just take care of it. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> that sounds like Karen. Yeah, she just set up this interview. And so this is really cool for me because uh, I'm literally meeting you for the first time and talking with you. So this will be the most genuine form of me getting to know you. And so hopefully uh, this is really fun for my listeners to listen to as well and get to know you in that way as well. So well, thanks if, for having me, man. Yeah, dude, this is really, really wonderful. Uh, I think if you want to, I know you, uh, I listen to the podcast. Also, you have a podcast with, with Karen on the Musician's Guide for the Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. Yes. And so we're going to cover some of that stuff. But if you want to know more about Nick, that would be a great resource to look to as well, because there's I, actually two of them on there. I, 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 Karen's interviewed me a couple times in there. So um, I, I have explained yeah. who I am and what I do a little bit. Yeah. In there. So we can cover some of that just for the sake of doing it. But uh, you want some more depth. You should go there because, like I said, we're going to uh, uh, there's a couple things I just want to focus on while we talk here. So perfect. Do you want to go ahead and just talk about, you know, the Toby Keith thing? Obviously, uh, we'll just start there. Um, you can maybe start with how long you've been doing it. And then I would really like to pick apart how this became a thing okay. for you in your life. I'm just um, wrapping up my fifth summer tour with uh, Toby Keith. And I got hired in January, at the top of the year in 2015. And um, my first gig was on live TV. That's amazing. It was, uh, it was great. It was terrifying yeah. and awesome. Yeah. And, uh, do you, one thing I want to know right out of the gate is, do you have music or are you playing memorized? It's all memorized. Yeah. yeah. So when do you learn the music? As soon as, as soon as the song is available for us to learn, we, yeah. um, we arrange our own music, our own parts for the horn section. Um, we do that together. Um, or whoever has the most time, we'll just do it all okay. at once. But, um, yeah, as soon as Toby will send us a new song, that's when we write the horn parts for it. And are you, are you playing are you adding to songs that already exist that don't have horn section stuff or are you only playing songs that have a horn section in So them? basically all of Toby's discography like you might find some stuff with horn parts in it but most of the time there's no horn parts in any of his recordings Right that's kind of what I thought So yeah. we had to come up with everything So do you play on every chart almost pretty much That's the, so cool save so, for a couple ballads So then like the the live show is going to be very different than from what his albums are going to be. It's a very horny show. That's so cool. Yeah. 
so he must like want that obviously he must mm-hmm. respect and want and value that thing. He's, he's had a horn section um i think for the past 17 years that's amazing like 2002 i would so. not have assumed that i would have assumed he's up there with his band doing right. his thing that's so cool he values that he really does and um he's he treats us he treats all of us like family like we're not you know second rate um band members yeah. by any means um we we're up there and we make the show happen the way he likes it to happen so on a scale of one to ten, how good a friend? Well, it's one being not really, and ten being besties. How close are you with Toby? One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so you he, are family, but you're not like interacting with him all the time. He knows my name. Uh, he'll, you know, sit down at lunch sometimes, um, which you know is fine. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, we're we'll talk about sports or cards, uh, of which I know about. I know about nothing about sports sure. or cards. But, okay. Um, you know, it's just like... That's so cool, though. I mean, I, I think sometimes it's pretty easy to get this idea that these country artists, you know, uh, that or maybe not country, but just pop artists in general, they're sort of removed from what we do in the, quote, classical or jazz world, you know, commercial world where we care about it very deeply, but they kind of don't know what it is or don't care. You know right. what I mean? I feel like that's... At least that's what I think sometimes is, you know, they just come in and sing the song and then they leave. Right. But to know that... Toby not only values it to put it maybe in some of his songs, but to want that in his show mm-hmm. uh, that I have all just a little bit more respect for, oh. for him as a, as an artist and not as a person, I guess. I've, I've got incredible respect for my boss. He is an incredible performer. Um, he, and he just, he did the business right. Um, everything that he does, he basically, he owns, he's not working for anybody. Oh, cool. So, so what would you attribute? This is going to be a side question that has nothing to do with you, but Obviously, um, just Toby's longevity would probably be a big part of his success. Yeah, he's legendary. But do you, I mean, what other things would you attribute to his success if it's not just he's been around for a long time? Because it sounds like he's pretty savvy Mm -hmm. and he values, so he values adding extra musicians and having the show be pretty amazing. So what other things would you say like adds to him that you might not think about Toby? It's, I think it's the way he was brought up and where he comes from, um, and this has nothing to do with music, but it's just the way he gives back to his community mm. and, and builds from within um, and just takes care of the people that he knows and has, has always been there for him. And he's always, he's always there for them. That's very cool. Um, so if you're in your fifth year, that means you said you started in January of 2015. So if you don't want to go through the whole story, that's fine. That's the part I'm most interested in. Um, cause I know you played in top 40 cover bands in, in Denton for, for a many years. Yeah. And so you, I remember you saying in the other podcast that you feel like that was a big training ground for you in terms of being able to play more commercial styles. Cause you are, you are, uh, classically trained, right? You want to go got through the your education. Classical. Yeah. yeah. I have a, I have a bachelor's of music in trombone performance and I studied classical music at North Texas. So, you classically trained, start playing in top 40 cover bands for how many years did you do that again? Oh, almost a decade. Okay, so yeah. quite a while. And then now your career path is taking you to Toby. Keith, mm-hmm. what I'm most interested in is how did you make this jump from I'm doing top 40 cover bands? How did you get discovered? How did your name come up in the conversation to be a part of something like Toby Keith's band? Okay. Um, well, I... When I was a freshman, I, I kind of already knew where I wanted to go to school. So when I was, let me back up a little bit more. In high school, I, I was going to the one o'clock lab band concerts 
all the time. Uh, whenever they had a concert, I was there. And I got to hear these incredible um, collegiate musicians performing at you know a top level. And I was like, oh man, I'm going to school here. I'm gonna be a jazz major. Okay. And um, my private lesson instructor said, um, you know, let's, let's rethink that. I think you should do classical and then you can do jazz ensembles as much as you want, but you should study classical music. It's going to be a better fit for you. And I was like, okay, I trust. Okay. Um, and so that's what I did. I auditioned and was super confident about it. Um, little did I know that they turned away over two thirds of the people that, um, auditioned. Wow. Um, when I did. Wow. And I, I must've barely come in at the bottom <laughs> there, but I was like, oh yeah, I was amazing. And then I, I get to school and um, there's like 80 trombonists in the department yeah. and I'm the worst one. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, you go from, you know, being first chair your entire life. Yeah. That was my experience. Worst one. That was my experience too. I, I thought, was like, oh, let's get to work. Yeah. Like, I remember this is actually a good, a good problem. Being in, in high school, I was, you know, I wasn't necessarily the best, but I was one of the best uh, of the trumpet players that was um, in the band. And, you know, you just don't have any perspective, right? And so you None think, at all. oh, I'm, so, I'm going to be great. I'm going to take the world by storm. And then I remember going to undergrad and um, the grad students made me know that I wasn't as awesome as I thought it was. I wouldn't necessarily call it hazing, but I just learned at that point in time, the world was much bigger than I initially thought it was. Oh yeah. And that's like, I think like you said, it's an important realization for many kids to have mm -hmm. is that um, you may be talented and you may be able to play your instrument well, but there's most likely a level far above what you think you know and only work, only dedicated, diligent practice and work is gonna get you there. So it's a good realization to have, I think. Absolutely. Um, I, I met this guy, uh, he played lead trombone in the one o'clock lab band at North Texas. And I'd been just watching him and I was like, oh, he sounds so good. I want to, I want to sound like this guy. I want to, you know, pick apart his brain, um, ask him questions, kind of see what he eats and drinks and how he plays. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was fortunate enough that he was the mentoring type. Oh, um, good. And I got a mentor out of the thing and I didn't even realize it. You know, as an 18 year old, I was like, this guy's really cool, you know? <laughs> but like, we just kind of hung out and he would just say things to me. And he said some ridiculous things too, but uh, he got the Toby Keith job. Mm. And so I was like, oh man, he's, he's a touring musician. He's a pro, he's doing the thing. And he would come back from the road and, you know, I'm deep into my undergrad now. And he's just telling me things like, you know, Nick, when you get out of school, you should, you should move to LA, drop 15 pounds, get sleeve tattoos and uh, highlight tips in your hair. You'll be the top call guy. Wow. I was like, man, you're... <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the statement. Like, I mean, obviously you did not do that. No, but I thought about it, man. <laughs> I thought about what it would be like to do something like that. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I was like, you know, he's probably not wrong in a sense. It's like you play the way you play, but he was saying like, you gotta, you gotta look apart too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but I was like, I was dead set since I was in high school. I was like, you know what? I'm going to play in a, a late night, uh, TV show band. That's what I wanted to do. Oh, that's so cool. And then, you know, college happened and then it's like, oh, I'm a classical major and I have this trombone quartet and we're making viral videos. And, um, and then I got to these pop gigs. Um, by the time I was like, I was 21 um, because I remember drinking a lot on these gigs. Mm -hmm. But um, 
the my mentor, he called me up and said, hey, would you be interested in picking up this top 40 gig with this band? I can't do it. This guy called and said, you know, can you recommend somebody for me? And I recommended you. Do you want, do you want to do it? And I was like, well, hell yeah, I want to do that. So I joined uh, David Whiteman and the Love Chocolates. That's a great name. That was the whitest chocolate they had. <laughs> and um, man, it was awesome. You know, uh, yeah, we were playing, you know, September and uh, Black Eyed Peas and I've Got a Feeling and all of that. Nice. You know, every night and everything, but it was great. And I definitely, you know, cut my teeth on pop music that way. Um, songs that you know you hear on the radio or songs that you grew up with um and then you get to play them and you know perform them that yeah. was really really cool and i did that for years and i played through i think i i had tenure in three cover bands while i was in the dallas fort worth area which was that's, cool it's just so interesting to be a classically trained musician to get this call and then just to say okay not to feel like, well, I'm classically trained. That's not necessarily what I do. Did right. you feel how much of an adjustment period did you feel like there was towards the beginning? Even though you may have been playing a jazz band and stuff like that and had some experience, was there an adjustment period or was it just kind of a good fit right from the beginning? It was pretty typically a good fit. I think having the, the classical training really helped um, the ensemble experience. Uh, okay. So it wasn't just like I'm coming in and sounding good. I'm coming in and, sound, and making everybody else sound good too. Oh, Which interesting. Which is a cool thing to have like the horn section balance out properly because I have some kind of outside knowledge that I'm bringing in. It's like, no, this is how, this is how we sound as a section. Interesting. And so I also think it's very interesting to note. And I think if you would like to expand upon this, it'd be cool. The idea that your relationship with this person is where much of your life came from. Yeah. Right. And, and he's that, like, he became like best friends with my parents out of it too. Yeah. Which is funny. I just think it's important for, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if it's prevalent, but you get, I think this idea that we just don't want to be burning bridges whenever possible, oh, yeah. you know? And I think sometimes people, uh, are thinking very in the moment about how they feel about somebody. Um, and that's legitimate, right? When someone's not treating you well or something like that. But the music world is a very small world. And as you experienced, you never know who or what is gonna come around to potentially provide you with an experience. And so I don't know if you wanna t like just expand upon the idea of not burning bridges and how important you think that is for your career. Absolutely, it's one of the most important things. But, and that, that was something, you know, my mentor told me, that was something our professors told all of us every week. It was just that casual reminder, guys, don't be a jerk. Yeah. Um, look around because you're going to be working with these people for the rest of your careers. Yeah. And man, it's so true. Like, yeah. I mean, it, we, I think we exist sometimes in the orchestral world that I'm in. Yeah. We exist in this bubble that it doesn't matter. We just have to win our audition and then obviously get tenure. But we just, we, we sort of like, it doesn't, like we can earn that, right? We right. win this audition. We did that. But I think... Everywhere else. This is a team sport. Yeah, everywhere yeah. else, you know, who you know and can lead to that next gig or lead to a cool opportunity. And if, right. you're, if you're a great player, that's obviously where it starts. But also being somebody that somebody wants to work with. And then in your unique case, it sounds like also being able to provide value in a way that they didn't have before in terms of your training. Right. So understanding all of your assets and what you can bring might be a super important thing, it sounds like. Well, and that's something um, when the horn section was conducting their search for Toby's next trombonist, they did it all under the radar. They didn't tell anybody in the band, they didn't tell Toby, they didn't tell managers or anything that this guy was gonna leave. 
and that somebody else was going to come in. They conducted their search privately. And so, um, and they, they looked back to people at North Texas because that's where they went to school also. Mm-hmm. So it, I am playing with people that right. I went to school with, you know? It, yeah, it came true. It did. What is that? I guess if you can tell us, what is that search process like? What's the audition process like for for his group? I um, I received a call, and they just said, um, you know, uh, so this is the this is the situation. Our trombonist, who you know very well, is leaving. He got a new job uh, with Cirque du Soleil, and he's the MD, and he's going to be traveling around the world, and he's taking a major pay raise, and great, you know, it's yeah. really awesome for him question for you is, you know, would you be interested in having the job? And so immediately it was like, well, hell yeah, I want that. So there was no, like, I got to think about it. Not for me. Yeah. Um, Interesting. But they also, and then the the follow-up to that was, well, um, just to let you know, like, that's really good. We, we were excited that you're excited about that, but, um, there is a line and you're in the short list, but you're second in line. And I was like, Oh. oh, okay. And he's like, uh, the guy that we gave first dibs to, who I also knew, um, they said, you know, he's he's got to think about it. He needs some time. Um, so, you know, you're going to have to keep a lid on this for a while and you can't talk to anybody about it. If the news gets out in any way, it could really mess up our search mm-hmm. because people are going to put their dirty mitts into the process. Right, right. And they might find somebody that we don't want. So I was like, okay. Yeah, like, can't even tell your family. I was like, okay. Um, so I had to sit on that for about two and a half months with no phone calls, no nothing, no updates or anything. Jeez. And then I got a call um, around Christmas time that said, hey, man, it's, it's yours if you want it. So and there what was they no, did like- was they got a recommendation from the trombonist that said, I, want, I would like for one of these people to take my job and then we'll talk about it and we'll come up with that. So they Googled, they YouTubed, oh, they looked okay. at everybody and they... And, all of these guys were North Texas guys too. So there wasn't, that's like everybody's played together. Everybody knows each other. And so they were just kind of thinking, well, you know, who's the one that's going to be the best fit, not just the best player. Sure. And um, so they saw the maniacal videos on YouTube. Um, they saw how I played. And then they also knew me because of the cover band scene. Um, I was subbing in a wedding band or something. And then the saxophone player from Toby Keith was also subbing in the same wedding band. Yeah, small and world, yeah. We, we gigged a couple times together. So we already knew each other. And he's like, I really liked hanging out with Nick. Um, that's who I want. Yeah. You know, that Nick gets my vote. And uh, and this is kind of how it is. It's like, you know, everybody else kind of came to their own conclusions. And then um, once the first dip guy said, guys, I, I, I can't take the job. It was you know, yours, yeah. Yeah, it was mine to take. So your audition was... Your playing audition part was your social media presence. It had already happened. Yeah. Interesting though, because I I wonder if you had anything on social media on YouTube or something like that, that was you, but maybe of not as good of a quality as as what representative of you, do you think that would have hurt your chances? I do. So then you would obviously, I imagine, recommend that people be very conscientious of what they're putting out there. Yep. Because in your case, that ended up becoming your audition yep. for this particular group. Yeah, you need high quality auto, high high quality audio yeah. and video if you're gonna be putting stuff on YouTube for sure. So then would you just recommend not putting something on YouTube or is there a way for people who don't have access 
maybe financially or mm. just like the, the, the know-how to do that? What is there an alternative for people to be able to share and start to learn social media without having to go the full nine yards, so to speak? It's an interesting thing because like the perform I think the performances speak for themselves because what we had on YouTube was a performance. Um, so like, it wasn't like, we're just, you know, if they're talking head videos, they can see the kind of person I am. They were seeing the kind of personality I had in my playing. Sure. Um, and then there was also three other guys in that video that were playing just as, just as great. You know, we were contributing to an ensemble sound. And so these guys got to see specifically how I fit in an ensemble and how I sound in an ensemble. Yeah. Um, and I think that was really, really helpful. Other than that, like we, we performed live a lot. And so we had tours, we had a lot of presence. Did you, there. Are, were those videos professionally produced or did you just like set up a camera that you guys had? We bought, um, we bought high quality, good cameras. And then we hired uh, professional audio engineers to record everything and for us. And then just put them together later. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we did that ourselves. Yeah, it's I, I'm on the Instagram. I put, I put a lot of stuff on Instagram right now because I feel like Instagram, it's not like a behind the scenes type thing, but the shorter videos I think lends itself well to like not super produced content. But I feel like YouTube is such a specific thing, like especially with the quality of what exists on YouTube now that you kind of have to have like to, in order to be considered you have to have like high quality video, high quality audio, mm -hmm. kind of an understanding of how, if it's not a live performance, how you want to structure the videos, you know, now thumbnails are a thing, oh, yeah. right? Like there's so much to consider when to entering all YouTube specifically. Yeah. And that's what we decided. It was like, if we're going to do this on YouTube, it needs to be high quality. So, I mean, a couple of the guys in the group, they took their parents' credit cards and went to Best Buy, which is like, I don't recommend that <laughs> but because they got in trouble for it. But it ended I mean, up working out. We did what well, we at had, least for you. We did what we had to do. Yeah, uh, and, and it was it was for the group. It wasn't you know so I could get a Toby Keith job because that right, wasn't even on my radar. Yeah, but um you know it was for the it was for the good of the group so we could um start so we could make a recording. That's why we made a video in the first place. It was like have the video, and then you know we're gonna have take this footage and make a Kickstarter, which is how we got the money to make our first album. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So do you feel that? for a group that would just be starting out that if they don't have a lot of live performances, but they make the investment to, you know, record, like say they record one piece and get a professional video. Do you feel like that's worth the investment right out of the gate? Absolutely. Because we were reaching out to schools and universities all over the place before we had this video and saying, Hey, we're, we're a trombone quartet. We, uh, we won the international trombone festival in 2009. And it's like, Hey, we won this. Would you like to have us play at your school for your students, for your band program? And nobody would respond or they would respond, no, never heard of you guys. Huh. And we put that video out and we said, hi, you know, we're the Maniacal Four. We performed at the International Trombone Festival and won in 2009, saved the, the same script. And here's a link to our video at the bottom. Uh, you know, would love to hear back from you. Instant response. Wow. I've seen you guys. That video is amazing because it went viral. It took six months for it to go viral though. I don't know. Uh, I don't think many people know that. It wasn't like we put it out there and then it exploded. Yeah, yeah. It sat there for six months and the only people that were watching it were us and our moms. <laughs> um, and then it made it on, somebody put it on Reddit and it made it to the front page of Reddit one day. Oh, and that'll just do and it. That's, yeah. that's what took care of it for us. It's such an interesting that, thing that we, that's kind of the, what we live in now, right? Where credibility, oh, that's so crazy. I kind of hadn't thought about it because I won a trumpet competition a lot of years ago. Uh, for anybody that hears any noises, that's a- I'm, That's a train. That's a train over there. 
It's the same train that will be in Karen's episode. If it, I don't know what order these are going to be it's released just breaking. in. It's got squeaky wheels. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to me because I won this competition, I don't know, 2012, I think. It's like a pretty big deal, you know, to have won it. And not really anything has come about from it. Now, I haven't really pushed it, right? I haven't been like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, I have made a CD and stuff, but um, I haven't really pushed it. So it's kind of on me that that happened. But also the fact that that happened hasn't immediately led to other things. No, because nobody cares about that. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's no. like, it's good for us. And, you know, it's good for, you know, the community of trumpet players at that competition to remember you and be like, hey, you won. And then it's like, bye. Right. It's the same thing for high schoolers that go to Allstate. You know, I made state. It's the pinnacle. It's right. Like, nobody cares. When you get to college, nobody cares. And it makes me think of what I felt then was winning that thing did not matter. What I did with that mattered. Yeah. Yeah. I, if taking that information and what I did with that mattered. And what I like about what you guys did is it wasn't like nobody is paying attention. Like either we don't have it or like they don't know what's good. You know what I mean? Like kind of taking this like- uh, Personally. Antagonistic, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Taking it personally, you thought, okay, well, we're just gonna keep trying. And then you made this video, you know, and Jeremy Wilson said the same thing. Like he doesn't really- recruit the same way he used to because a lot of his YouTube stuff recruits for itself for him. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You know, it's social media is free, but obviously investing in high quality stuff is not free. So although the platform is there, that's free, it's still going to be an investment. So what, what's your advice on viewing how much you invest based on like what you're I mean, you can't just necessarily recommend people go all in right out of the gate, right? Because we don't know like what, if it's a real thing. So how do you gauge how much to invest based on where you're at? Is there like sort of, not a formula, but Mm -hmm. a way that you think about how much you're gonna give based on Like a a number amount? No, 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 no. So for me in the podcast, I bought these, like this setup right now. It's gorgeous. What I would call a second generation, right? When I first got my setup, I didn't have as nice a mic because I didn't have enough mic, as many mic stands because I didn't know what was where it was going to go. Yeah. But as I've interviewed people and I start to take it more seriously, I saw that it was uh, viable to invest more money into. Even if I don't make money, I just saw this as a thing. Yeah. And so for a, cha- for a group starting out, um, do you feel it's worth it to go all in or are there ways that they can invest a little bit less to kind of test the waters or do you just have to jump all in no matter what? I think you can do it on a budget, but I have to think like the way you're making your video has to be, you have to ask yourself this question. Would I watch this video if it was somebody else? Yeah. Or would I just click away? Because here's the thing, like there's so many people out there that are playing amazing music and they're putting up their senior recital, for instance, you know, and they've got their um, Zoom recorder with video set up in the back of the hall. So you've got, uh, uh, you know, it's good audio for a Zoom because the Zooms have great audio, but you know what? You're catching everybody in the hall, coughing, whispering, shuffling around, talking, um, sneezing, all of that. You're getting all of the room sounds. So you already are starting with less. Yeah. And then the video is grainy. You can't even see your face. Um, what are you going to do if you are watching that video? I mean, you're just going to click away. Right. You're going to go watch something else because like, yeah. you can't. Yeah. You, need, you need something that's going to keep you on that video. Yeah, no, especially on YouTube, I feel like the barrier of entry is a little bit higher than other platforms. But even on things like Instagram, you know, it just seems like 
ultimately what we want, this is like why I invested so much on the, this podcast is what I want is for nothing to get in the way of the message, right? Yeah. I don't want there to be- I, yeah, I don't removing want, interference, for right. sure. I don't want there to be a ton of room noise. Sometimes you can't help it, right? Depending on where you are, but I'd like there to be very little room noise, which is why I tried to get these microphones that yeah. you talk directly into. Then I have someone who masters my, like, but you take it seriously enough because if you believe in the quality of what you're doing, then it, I think, can justify the investment especially monetarily, but time-wise even more so. For sure. The, the investment you put into it. Yeah. So uh, I got really off track there. So to bring us back, the, the uh, question I was really hoping to ask you uh, related to Toby Keith is, if there's a, like I was asking you this before, if there's a freshman out there, trombone, trumpet, whatever player, uh -huh. and is like, that sounds like a cool thing. I would like to play with Toby Keith. Is there sort of a, uh, a a plan or a um, a path that they could follow to become that? Or is it kind of a stroke of luck? Like, what does it take for right. something like this to happen? Well, I think, you know, you can read all the Malcolm Gladwell books you like, and he's like, he's talking about environment all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I was in a right, I was in the right environment at the right time, I think. Um, so I don't, I don't know if I'd call it luck, but, you know, I was born in the year I was born in and I went to the school that I went to and I met the people that I met and I was the type of person that I was and somehow that happened. Like it wasn't on my radar. Um, so you can call that lucky, I guess, but I was preparing for something always greater. Still am. It's not like this is the pinnacle of success for me. Right. I'm constantly trying to go upward and onward and, you know, better my craft and look out for the next great thing. So in terms of career, because I imagine for you, bettering your craft of the instrument is just constantly trying to, you know, refine your product. In terms of career, what does upward look like for you right now? Well, um, I just made the next step um, in my career, and it was also another surprise for me because um, it, it's not a typical thing that somebody with just one degree would get. Um, typically, you need two or three degrees to become a um, college professor. Mm -hmm. But I am. I just started uh, a few weeks ago at Vanderbilt as an adjunct professor. Oh, right. Cool, cool. I didn't realize it was so recent. Yeah. Yeah. And that just kind of came together this summer. And so I get to work with uh, Jeremy Wilson in, in his program, and I get to work with Ryan Mitta in his program yeah. as well at Vanderbilt. So Jeremy, obviously we know, is a fantastic player. And so you're also teaching alongside him, teaching trombone players. And is there... Uh, is there a thing that you feel that you are especially trying to bring that's unique to you as a teacher? Because I could imagine how it would feel to teach next to a guy like that, but you obviously have experiences that, that are very different. So yeah. are you trying to highlight that this is something unique to you or like what's your strategy as a teacher? There's a couple things. So I, I am bringing my experience um, in you know commercial and jazz and and anything like that. Um, so I am working with jazz students and teaching jazz lessons. And I'm also working with young students that aren't in the collegiate level yet. So they're they're part of the Blair Academy, that's what it's called. And they're like high schoolers, but they're the cream of the crop high schoolers that wanna become musicians. And so they get to come into Vanderbilt and take lessons with faculty. And so what I'm doing there is I'm trying to, uh, what Jeremy and I are trying to do is build this community in the trombone department at school. And that's something that we held near and dear when we were at North Texas together. Sure. Um, we, there was a culture and a community of caring and um, togetherness and mentorship. And 
all of the things that would help uh, you know the future generation succeed in a healthy way. It's very interesting too that not only in Toby's band are you working alongside people you went to school with, but now at Vanderbilt, you're also going. You're working with somebody. It's it's a pretty I interesting. Told you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's very a very true statement. Um, and I think it's a wonderful goal to to have to not only take it serious just in terms of I would like to teach these people mm-hmm. how to play the instrument, but I teach a very a little bit. But knowing what my teachers mean to me, I kind of take that mentorship right. role as seriously as I can. You know, as seriously as they will let me. You know, Absolutely. some of them are not as into that as others would be. But if they're into it, I try to take that very seriously and, and help them understand where they are as a person, not right. just as an instrumentalist. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that because they need to be a person first, sure. I think. But then as we've discussed, being a good person, being a person that people want to work with will can tie into very directly where your career might go as much as, are, if not more, as we've you probably experienced than how well you do or don't play your instrument. Exactly. And that's where the goal goes, I think, for me is not about like, well, the next greatest thing is for me to get a college teaching job. That wasn't it. The goal is for me to um, work and build with people that I care for and respect um, as people and, yeah. and musicians. And that, this is, this is going to go back to what we were talking about before the microphone turned on, but that is a goal I think you could do anywhere, anytime, yep. right? So for people that possibly are listening to this that are non-musicians, um, that just are interested in growing, that kind of thing would be pervasive and I think making you successful in any field. Absolutely. You know, there's these character traits that uh, successful people have, I think that we can extract. And I would say that that above all others you see in many successful people is they just work with people they respect, the people they work with respect them. And they sort of have this, yeah. It's a good trust thing too. Exactly, yeah. yeah you build trust with with uh, with each other. And then also they're just people you wanna work with for sure. Yep. Um, you've mentioned the Maniacal Four. And so I think it'd be cool to talk about this and kind of pick apart um, building and, and maintaining and finding the right people for a group. I'm sure you guys have gone through the gamut of experiences and so, um, well, I guess we could start with um, you've been, how long have you been a group and kind of how it started? Oftentimes it's just four friends like at a right. university, but I don't know if that's the exact scenario that you guys started with. It's kind of like how it started. We didn't start out thinking that we were going to be the, the it trombone quartet or anything. Uh, we formed for class credit. Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> so we had a chamber music uh, credit that we needed fu- to fulfill as undergrads. And um, the way they set it up was they could place you into groups or you could make your own and just tell the professor, hey, this is what we're doing. And so we're like, well, let's make a trombone quartet. And, you know, let's, we like hanging out with each other. We're, all, we're already hanging out in the dorms. We're playing video games and eating all our meals together and taking all the same classes. And so we formed a group. Cool. And yeah, so we just kind of did that. And we were very good at wasting time. Um, we sucked. Yeah. Like we were horrible. <laughs> but we got... Um, a weekly coaching session uh, with with faculty, and uh, and from there, like we just started really enjoying it, and our coach really pushed us and really helped us and helped us grow to love what we were doing sure. as a group, and we were felt like it was just, you know, some of us was greater than the individual, and we were working towards something bigger than ourselves. So, do you feel like you kind of just got lucky that you four? got together and happened to work. You know what I mean? Because it doesn't sound like you were forming thinking we all would make a great group. 
And it ended up being that you could do it for a long term, but oftentimes personality conflicts are what will end a group, right? Yep. So do you feel like you just got lucky in that you no. were all friends and it happened? Or no, like how did- I, I think it could have it could have ended, you know, very abruptly, very quickly. But um our coach, she told us like pretty much from the beginning, um, especially when, when things started to get better and we were like, Oh, you know, we could take this more seriously. Mm-hmm. She told us it's not about compatibility of ability, meaning like you don't have to be the best players in the room. You could get four incredible trombonists, but they're going to suck playing together. She said it's about compatibility of commitment. So we had to take a good look inside of ourselves and say like, are we, are we on the same page commitment wise with this group? And that's, that's what took us the distance. Interesting. So we were talking about chamber music groups. So first, that would be the first step then for people is to find four or three or five or six people that are equally committed to the process of doing it. Not necessarily that we all sound good together, but are we committed to what this means? That would be the first step, it sounds like. To me, the second step would be then asking yourselves, what's going to make you unique? You know, what's going right. to separate yourself from other trombone quartets in your case, or the brass quintets or woodwind quintets? Did you guys ever talk about what was going to make you unique, or did you kind of stumble upon how that worked? Is there a strategy for finding that? Kind of get walk us through that. Yeah, we we definitely talked about it, and um, because we could have been just another quartet playing the standard stuff, um, which will make anybody fall asleep in a concert, which yeah. is you know. That's kind of the nature of the beast. <laughs> um, so Carl and I, we really um, enjoyed our you know hot Denton, Texas days with the windows rolled down and we would just listen to classic rock on the radio. Um, and we were just like, man, that'd be so cool if we could like play Carry On Wayward Son, you know, as a trombone quartet and get a rhythm section. And Is that your viral video? Yeah. That was you guys? Yeah. Oh, I did not put that together <laughs> until right now. That was that's like, us. dude, everybody's seen it. I can't believe it. Nobody that. knows. I was like, oh, that's you guys. I, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten that. That's response, hilarious that I'm sitting talking to you. I mean, I watched that. I don't even remember. Like, I was an undergrad probably or yeah. like grad school. It's been a while. That's so crazy. That was you guys. Yeah. Okay. So Sorry. Like, that, was our, that was our very first video. Not including Super Mario Brothers from the back of a hall with a Zoom. <laughs> yeah. So that because that one like did not get viewed. I can't believe that was you. I can't believe I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> this is a little surreal for me. I just that's so funny. I did not realize that until right now. Well, that's that's what made us different, right? Because we had yeah. a rhythm section. We had an electric trombone, man. Yeah. Like we we made it we made it different. You yeah. Know? So but in a way that's that like, in a way that, that you guys bought into, right? You weren't yeah. just like, let's do this because that's different. You right. So what it sounds like is finding out a way to take this medium that exists, trombone quartets, mm-hmm. and then making it, uh, I guess, genuine. Yeah, right? playing the music that we like, that yeah. we cared about. It was like, this is fun. This is this means something to us. So did it matter to you out of the, I mean, you started as a, cha- as a, as a, as a chamber group as students, right? So you probably weren't concerned with, well, people like this. You were just playing because you wanted to play together. Right. When you started to become more well-known or uh, maybe after this video dropped or whatever, did it become a concern to you of making music that you thought people would like? Or did you have you tried to stay true to, let's just do what we want. And if people like it, cool. And if they don't, like kind of how do you balance? We only ever did what we wanted. Yeah. Um, and that first, because we, because we were listening to classic rock on the radio, and we did that video and we wanted to make a Kickstarter to do our first album, which was a compilation of 70s rock tunes. Yeah. 
like one was from the eighties. We did Rosanna by Toto. Okay. So that barely missed the seventies, but <laughs> um, it was all seventies rock tunes. Yeah. And uh, that's what we wanted to do. Um, and that could have really pigeonholed us, you know? Sure. Um, but our next album after that was mostly originals that Carl wrote, um, save for a couple arrangements of some co- and covers that yeah. we really liked and uh, thought would sound great as an ensemble. I think this is just a difficult thing. I was watching, this is going to sound crazy, but I was watching this documentary on Linkin Park like a week or two ago. The band. Yeah, Linkin Park, the band, right? And it was just kind of chronicling their evolution as a band, right? I know them for hybrid theory Mm -hmm. and Meteora, this kind of new metal, this heavy metal, but then they evolved into more of a pop sound. And I, I... I was seeing some interviews they had with their producer and their producer that you could tell that they were, this is what they wanted to do, but they felt like the fans wanted them to do the thing that they knew, right? This heavy metal thing. And the producer was just like, you guys should just do whatever you want to do. You got to be true to yourselves. But it's kind of difficult, right? When when you think people have expectations of what you should be. Right. So do you run into that at all as a group where people expect you to do a certain thing based on that YouTube video they saw? Or, and how do you deal with that? Does that matter to you at all? Kind of just like addressing expectation versus, and how do you deal with that, I guess? Yeah, um, because a lot of our stuff on YouTube was rock and roll in nature or it had a rhythm section, it was, you know, bright and flashy and electric trombones and all of that. When we'd go play our recitals, um, they just, the audience didn't know that the front half was going to be classical music uh, that we also really cared about. It wasn't the standard rep. It was, you know, commissions. It was stuff that we wrote um, and arranged ourselves, um, music that was near and dear to us, but it was acapella. And uh, the second half, after the intermission, we would bring out a rhythm section that people knew and that's what they knew and that's what was the draw basically. But, you know, most people were just genuinely surprised. Like, I didn't know that you guys could do that too. It's like, well, we won the International Trombone Festival. Right, yeah. That we've was been trying we to tell you. We didn't play electric trombone <laughs> yeah. at the International Trombone Festival. Right. Like we, we, you know, we're, we're pretty serious about what we do, but it's not just this. Only a couple times were people upset. <laughs> You know, so you find like, it's just we, people are happily we'd go out, surprised. We'd go out at intermission and meet and greet yeah. and, you know, sell posters and CDs and t-shirts and autograph things. And people would come up and have complaints for us. Yeah. Like, you should play more rock and roll stuff. It's like, okay, well, you're going to really like the next half. You know, <laughs> yeah, thank you yeah. so much for coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so cool to think of it that way, though, to see that people are surprised, but in a good way that you also do this other thing. Because I feel, yeah, sometimes if you, we as creative individuals can feel, again, pigeonholed to feel like you have to do something and that we're like, oh, if we do something different, people might not respond to it. But especially if you're being genuine, I I imagine, in my experience, the majority of it is that people are are happy about it. Genuinely. Um, And there was only a couple times, and I'm sure that, you know, there's been a lot more talk about the quartet. Um, Excuse me. (coughs) Be like... um, that I that I didn't hear, but like there was one I can't remember what school it was uh, somewhere in Michigan, and uh, we were on tour there and we were performing, and I think me and a couple of the guys were walking up some steps to go to you know back to our green room or something, and I can hear two people you know a few steps ahead of us saying, "Hey, are you going to this uh, maniacal concert tonight?" And the guy's like, "Oh no, they're not serious musicians. They just play freaking you know stupid rock songs." Nice. And I was like. 
Oh. Yeah. I was like, well, I feel really sorry for that guy. Yeah. But, you know, did we... It's it's just you know what we did to market ourselves. It's sure. not it's not entirely you know the whole story, but um, that's just the stuff that helped us you know break through. Sure, and get into places like your school, sir. But you know? even so, that's just a natural part of creating something that has right. value or worth. Like some people are really going to like it, and some people are really not going to like right. it. Right. So we we did classical, we did jazz, we did rock, we did it all. Yeah. Like there's something for everybody. We like to think it was like a musical buffet sure, at our sure. concert. So, yeah, just the idea and the ability to say, although this person doesn't like what I'm doing, there are a lot of people who like it, and it's most important that we like it. Well, yeah, yeah, that's actually a better point than I was just about to make. So let's go with that direction. That you believe in what you're doing is the first and foremost thing, especially in any kind of creation. And I feel oftentimes orchestral musicians, because we're not the ones that created it. We have a disconnect sometimes, right? Yeah. And it's it's completely understandable because we're interpreting and we're trying to feel, right? We want to feel what this thing is, but we're not the ones that actually created it, right? right. Oftentimes. And so there's a little bit of a disconnect from believing in what we're doing a, a little bit. I mean, right. we, we sell it and we believe in it, but not the same way that you've created, like you guys created something that didn't exist. And so you really have to believe in it if people, other people are going to believe in it. Right. Because... Mahler's Fifth Symphony is a known commodity, you know? You can say, I'm going to play Mahler Five and people are going to show up. Right. And so there's an element of selling it, but there's an element of known. When you guys were starting with the Maniacal Trombone Quartet, Maniacal Four. Yep. Yeah. When you guys started with that, it wasn't a known commodity. So you had to believe very deeply in what you were doing way before anybody else believed in you, yeah, probably. Absolutely. Yeah. Wait, Which is... And fortunately for us, you know, because we were young and stupid, we had really good support from our faculty. They were our number one cheerleaders. They, we that's had to, so cool. We borrowed their belief a lot, I think. Good. That's so, that's another way, obviously. I'm sure it's then, sorry, I just had two thoughts and they just diverged. So I'll go with the one where it's then it's clear that you're thinking about how you give back then because you mm -hmm. got that so much from your education. And then it sounds like with your teaching at Vanderbilt, I want, to, very, I want to continue a legacy that I was a part of. That's Absolutely. Awesome. That's very cool. Um, okay. So you do, you teach, you play with Toby Keith. I know you do you work with Karen's. You're, you're like COO, right? Of right. Kubitis. Um, yeah. And that's, that's a multi-hatted yeah. kind of job. And I, you know, this summer I had to really take a big step back just because I was gone so much. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I do work with Karen and, and support her in any way I can with the company. So that's a, basically what I'm trying to get at is there's a lot going on for you. And yeah. I wonder if you have any um, habits or systems that you have in place. This is a, a question I really like to ask people who are busy and got a lot and, and you're trying to give as much uh, or as much as you have to all these things. Yeah. Are there systems or habits in place that you keep everything in order or like how do you make sure that you're going to be able to give everything to everything and not kind of be burnt out or overworked? I wish I had a good answer. Oh, wow. Um, I'm still learning. Okay. Um, I'm a mess in the summertime um, and every my routine is out the window. It's gone. And uh, it's, you know, even though I love my job with Toby Keith and I love touring and I love the band and I love the music and I love, you know, performing for the audience. I get to come home for 36 hours at a time mm -hmm. and 
it's a stomach ache the whole time because it's like, I know I have to leave again. And yeah. it's like, I want to have a good night's rest in my own bed. I want to snuggle my dogs. I want to kiss my wife. Yeah. I want to I want to make a meal, you know? Um, I don't want to eat at another truck stop again, you know? Uh, but I also know it's like, well, it's just the season that I'm in yeah. and I just have to make sure I'm staying healthy as best as I can mentally and physically uh, and make sure, you know, I'm taking care of my priorities. When I get home, you know, off the road, it's, you know, trying to have some kind of semblance of routine. So, um, you know, that's, that's a process that's being built over and over every time I come home this year, this fall, it's a new thing. Cause I've got that Vanderbilt job now. So that'll, that'll help in terms of just, you know, finding something that I can really settle into. But, um, it's, it's a difficult, yeah. it's a difficult process coming home every time. Yeah. I can imagine. I think you hear from touring musicians, it's why it's never, not always a lifelong thing, you know, just because it's it's very awesome while it's happening. But at some point it does, I think just become like, it's so much to constantly put yourself in this space of no uh, routine and you're kind of on somebody else's clock and then you come right. back and you got to get your, um, your thing back together. But I'm always curious. Um, if there's things, I mean, so maybe you don't have it all figured out, but are there things that you're like, I do this every day or I wake up at this time and it works or are there just, are there some things that you try to do maybe when you, you're getting back into your routine and you're thinking, okay, to get back into my routine, I know I should do these things. Are yeah. there anything like that? I've been, uh, I had this realization this summer um, because I was really wanting to hit the ground running with a good routine um, this fall. And I was like, man, like what kind of, like, where can I look back on and say like, man, that was the Nick Lawfer that really had it together, you know? Cause like when you're in college, it's like, you don't sleep, you don't drink water. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you're a mess the whole yeah, time. Yeah. So it's like, okay, maybe that's not a good routine. You know, <laughs> like you just practice as much as you can and you hope you have friends at the end of the day. Sure. But like, <laughs> but- It's kind of an accurate. I was thinking back to like, maybe like senior in high school me who would get up at, five and go run for three miles, um, come home, jump in the pool in the backyard and, you know, get a shock to the system and, you know, eat breakfast with, with, you know, my dad who was up paying bills or whatever in the dark and go get ready for school and leave for school an hour and a half early till I can go into the practice room in the band hall and just, uh, shut you were like in high school. school started. Yeah. Wow. That's impressive. And I miss that. I miss that a lot. Um, and it's the kind of personality I have is like to have that, it, it was really perfectionist. It was like, I, I had to do it the exact same way every day. Like I would run the same three mile route. I know the exact, I can still imagine the exact point where my foot touches, where that's the, my turnaround spot. Wow. That's a mile and a half. I hit this crack on the sidewalk and I can go home back to my door. That's amazing. And I miss that. Um, I'm fat now. <laughs> like, <laughs> how, but how in the world, what, what led you to that much discipline as a child? You know, my dad. Because <laughs> I say, like, like, it's pretty rare, I think, for unless there's some outside influence. Like, I was not like that when I was a senior in high school. You know, yeah. me and my dad are the same person. Okay. Um, he, he just he set a really good example. I think, um, and he's the one that gets up at zero dark thirty every day, <laughs> and uh, and just will work. Yeah. And so I was seeing that, and it's like he he did that so early so that by the time he was done with work, 
It was early enough that he could cook a meal for the family. My mom could burn cereal. She didn't cook. Oh, wow. Um, so it was like, by the time it was dinner time, there was dinner on the table. We had family dinner every day. Um, and I really, really respected that because it was like, he, he took care of his stuff so early when everybody else was asleep Yeah. that by the time it was, you know, there was a time where everybody could gather together. He was available and, yeah, and ready to do it. I've spoken about this a few, I don't, I don't even remember how many times I've spoken about this on the podcast, but that's a change I made recently is to get up at, you know, 5.30 or as, as, as early as I can manage to get up uh, because I, there are a few things I really want to get done because then when the kids wake up, no matter what's going on in my life, they, you know, my kids and wife generally will take precedent, you know? Yeah. And most days, once they're at school, if we don't have work or something like that, I, I have the whole day to work or something. But on busy days, that might be the only time. And it's a, it's, it's a weird balance. It's weird trying to figure this out because it wasn't like that up until a couple months ago. Yeah, it's very recent. Yeah, guess, exactly. Yeah. It's kind of what you're talking about. I'm trying to develop habits. That's why I'm asking. I'm trying to develop habits that will allow me to balance both sides of my life and make sure that I'm not, my family doesn't feel the effects of me wanting to take on more. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's, I think where I'm coming from too. And I can see that in you is like, you want to have that time for them. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, we're, we're doing that for them. And that's what my dad was doing. He was doing it so the family could be the unit that, you know, was together and had quality time. Um, yeah. I, I think just, it's, I want that so much. Um, and that's something I don't get when I'm gone. So then what was your realization? If you thought back and you're like, is that the point where you're, you thought that's the Nick Lawfer I want to be yeah. again? So yeah. how have you tried to incorporate that in your routine coming back? I've been back for uh, 48 hours almost. So <laughs> probably not very much at all. Yeah. You literally came back to like yesterday. I came back yesterday morning. Um, I was, yeah. So I just came horrible. at yeah. the exact right time. You, yeah, you really if did. If I came two days earlier, you wouldn't have been here. I would have been on Navy Pier playing a gig. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I woke up on Navy Pier um, on September 11th. Was that Tuesday? Yes. Yeah, we did a private show for this billionaire and you know a couple thousand of his closest friends. Um, it would have been Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah. yeah, so we left Tuesday night at like nine o'clock. I woke up there on the pier had coffee on a bench on the water. It was fantastic. I bet it was. And went through the day. I um, made it through the whole night. And then after the gig, we had Giordano's pizza brought into the bus. So I had deep dish and we left. And the next thing you know, I'm waking up um, down the road outside of Nashville. And you know, wow. Karen's on her way to pick me up and I get to be home for the next two weeks. I haven't been home in two weeks in months. Yeah. So... Yeah, this is like nah, that's everything's I mean, new and exciting right yeah. now. Yeah, are there things that you know for me trying to read every day, trying to write something every day have become more important to me? Do you have things that you're kind of non-negotiables that you want to get in each day? Yep. Um, there's uh, the only kind of routine that I ever got to have on the road was a practice routine. <laughs> sure. I was like, that's the one thing I can control is I can go find a closet in an arena and just work on me for a little bit. Um, I really tried to get into listening to podcasts or books on tape and it, I just found myself really distracted out there. Um, yeah. And reading also very distracting. Um, it's just, there's just so many people, there's so much activity and so much buzz going around the whole sure, time. Sure. Um, that you can't really get private time unless like, uh, unless I was like really focused on 
trombone. Sure, and, sure. Like making music in, in or a closet by your, yeah. In a closet by myself. So I didn't want to be like listening to a podcast or reading a book in a closet. I thought that was weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Someone opens it up. You're like, uh, excuse uh, occupied. me. Occupied. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so you're you get your practice routine in. We'll get a little bit of brass playery together for a second. Uh, what are your like? I gotta hit this yeah. in order to stay in shape while you're out on the road. Um, well, I got I got my great gliss warm ups and lip slurs and everything, but uh, it's probably I do three tunes by ear in all twelve keys every day. It takes about forty five minutes. You're fluent, like Will talks about. Oh yeah, yeah you, like, you gotta you gotta do it. Um, I keep a I keep a, a tune journal, so I kind of write down this. These are the tunes that I played today. I did them in I did each tune in twelve keys. I write down three positive things and three criticisms. Um, you know things I want to get better at. Yeah, yeah. And then I kind of just any kind of extra notes. You know what what was I feeling like? Uh, I I have a checklist also on there. Did I shower? Did I shave? Was I looking good and feeling good before I played. Cause I find like if I'm in my pajamas and I have boogers coming out of my nose and I haven't had coffee, like I'm not gonna do this as good as I could. So you have like a journal to keep you organized. Oh yeah. And yeah. then I already have it planned for the next day. So it's like tomorrow I'm gonna play these tunes and you know, it's gonna be at this time. Cause I think even not on the road, that that's something that helps me, you know, to be yeah. planned in advance. And I'm starting to realize the benefits of that in general, right? Trying to plan as, as far in advance as you can. I would talk to Jeremy, you know, he was saying, but allowing for some flexibility, of course. But I'm starting, especially in terms of practice, knowing what you're going to practice, maybe even about how long you're going to spend so you can try to plan for an amount of time. Yeah, I, I've started to realize a lot of value in that um, to make sure that you can uh, adhere to uh, uh, some sort of practice schedule. You know, I think that's, so it's very interesting that I imagine that's a necessity for you on the road. Be. Cause yeah. I bet it wouldn't be hard for a full day to go by and you not to have time if you don't really search for it. And if I don't have, if I don't do it, I suffer on the show big time. Like obviously anybody would, but like Toby's show is hard. It's, it's a long blow and it's, um, it's incredible with the range. Like I go from, the last note on my slide, low E, all the way up to like, you know, screaming in the stratosphere. Gosh. And it's just everywhere in between and it's constant and it's loud and yeah. it's quiet and it's just mentally and physically very taxing. That's uh, very surprising to me too, you know, that you would think sometimes when your horn's backing stuff up, it would just be a bunch of footballs, like whole notes and stuff. Nope. Um, these are, <laughs> yeah, well, and again, it's like not to toot the North Texas horn, but like there are some Wagnerian <laughs> notations <laughs> going on in our horn parts. It's like, oh my God, what are we, what are we thinking? Wow. Like we're, yeah, it's not just, not just pads and footballs. So it's just it's like, really it's engaging. Really hard-hitting stuff. It's like, it's yeah. just really like you're there, you're in it. Is there ever, do you feel, so I imagine it's the same show. Yeah, for time. the most part. I mean, I know, I, I, I heard you say that he sometimes calls audibles from the stage and stuff like that. So minus that, it's probably, you're not playing different arrangements or different charts. Like, no. So similar to a musical where you're going to play a run of it. Once you learn the book, you learn the book. Yep. Do you ever feel that you're able then to go on autopilot and chill a little bit? Is there, or is every single show, you have to stay massively focused? Massively focused because we're not just standing there either. Like we... Like Toby calls the horn section the knuckleheads. Um, <laughs> we are kind of the jesters of the band yeah. um, because like otherwise we're just standing there and it doesn't look like very much. And it's like, I know a lot of people will be really turned off by like 
adding a little bit of choreography into the mix. Yeah. But hear me out. Like, <laughs> it started off serious, and I wasn't in the band when it started off being like a couple of the guys in the horn section were like, no, we're going to, you know, do the, you know, slide to the left, slide to the right. We're going to make it look like we're really enjoying our, you know, Backstreet Boys choreography here uh, as horn players. And it's like, first of all, that's a big turnoff for me. Like, I don't want to be a dancer. I want to be a player. But um, they, those guys in the horn section knew that it was not for them. It was for sure. the audience. Yeah. And uh, so what if it looks like we're having a good time? We're having a good time, right? Right, yeah. Um, but right. They, uh, the saxophone player in the middle to not like it uh, because it was... The, the dancing was just too serious for me. It was like, why are we trying to look good? Yeah. Like we're all fat. <laughs> like we're all maybe a little buzzed. Yeah. Like, why are we trying to do these like hard hitting moves? And so he started um, doing their moves, but in a trollish manner and it pissed the other guys off. But um, Toby thought it was so funny that like, here we are like dancing like idiots like for real <laughs> like it's, it's supposed to be funny now yeah toby loved it so much he's like you guys can keep on doing that <laughs> so like we are doing like hilarious acrobatics on stage um just trying not to fall over that's and, amazing um you know i think i did a thousand high kicks in chicago the other night oh my god i'm still sore but like that's awesome um, it really brings out something different for the audience where they're like I was first of all, they were not expecting to see a horn section in a country band, and second of all, like, are these guys for real? Because a, that's hilarious, and b, they're kind of good at it. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, we as musicians, yeah, to take ourselves so seriously that we're like, no, we're not going to do that. But I think I heard you say in the other one, the audience is having a good time. Yep, and they kind of expect seeing the musicians having a good time oh, yeah. too. And well, so like, I we're, think we're hilarious. We're vulgar too. So it's like we're throwing the shocker at them. Nice. All night. Nice. Like, just going like that's part of one of our moves. You know, we're <laughs> pelvic thrusting with our instruments. Like yeah. it's that's a thing. Uh, it's just clearly like a carryover from this sort of prim and proper, you know, yeah. we take ourselves which of course, like I also imagine Toby is taking like the music very seriously. I imagine you guys, while you're dancing around, you can't also then sound bad, you know? No. It has yeah. to be it has to be nails. Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting part of it. It's like the music is serious, but we can have a good time doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, not everybody in the band likes it, but screw it. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's only because we're taking the camera time away from them, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just, it's very cool to hear that kind of perspective, you know? And of course, like you said, being classically trained, I'm sure that's still a part of you. It's not like all of a sudden you have played in Toby's band for five years and done the top the top 40 stuff that you're 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 just like that's not a that's not what I do anymore I'm sure that's still a big part of your foundation as a player it has to be yeah, yeah. it has to be that's that's and I think that's what makes me really valuable in that ensemble is um, having that background and experience as a classically trained musician with a heavy experience in uh, chamber music yeah like that's that's a big deal um, for the other guys in the band to know it's like we can we can trust Nick to make make us sound good too. Yeah, you know. So a, a lot of times when I close out episodes, I ask this question, and I I, I would I feel like you're going to give a really unique answer, awesome. and I'll kind of I'll kind of um, preface it a little bit, um, and hopefully we can talk about this longer than we normally would. Uh, 
the question I ask is, why do you think music is relevant in our culture? Because often for classical musicians, all we read about is how this, this orchestra is on lockout, this orchestra is on strike, this orchestra is folded, and, and you get this sort of sense that classical music is uh, dying, I guess, you know, or it's not as relevant in our culture as maybe popular music is or whatever other forms of music. And I'm curious what your, because you're classically trained, you're in a trombone quartet that plays classical and, you know, rock and pop music. You're with Toby. You have such a wide variety. I'd be curious what your um, impressions are in terms of what you see from interactions with audiences and the mm -hmm. various forms that you play and kind of what your take is on whether music is actually dying or if it's like what your thoughts might be on why it looks that way if it's not. Yeah. It was a really good question. I like yeah, it. I kind of hit, I should have told you I was going to ask you this because a lot of people like to think about this, but. I think I have, a, I have a couple directions to go in, but. Cool. Um, pop music is always going to be the most current thing, right? So like, you know, Mahler and Brahms and all those guys from back then, that was pop music. Right. Yeah. You know, and it just changed. Jazz used to be pop music and people are saying jazz is dead. You know, it's like, okay, well, like what's, why, if we're, if it's dying, let's go with that for a second. Okay. It could die. It could very well die, but that's, uh, that's because nobody's taking responsibility for it. Um, they're taking responsibility for themselves, I think, you mm -hmm. know, um, but not for the music and not for why, why that music exists in the first place. Because I think, um, you know, if it's not pop, it's history but we need to know that we need to be educated. And if we're not educating our audience, then we're not serving oh, them. Interesting. That's an interesting perspective. Much in the same way we educate ourselves on just regular history. So we understand where we've been and how to potentially appreciate something we're experiencing now Yeah. based on history. You would argue it's the same for music. Yeah. And, um, and this isn't, this isn't musically related, but it was really interesting. Um, one of the guys in the band said the other day when we were in Chicago, it was 9-11. And we had our TV on on the bus and they were reading all the names. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a powerful thing. Yeah. And uh, he said something that was, it just, it was, it was irksome a little bit, but he was right to an extent. He was like, you know, when I was a kid, uh, they used to do this for, um, the uh, um, Pearl Harbor attacks. They used to read all the names and they don't do that anymore. And he's like, I wonder how long they're gonna do this for. Yeah, Until it's just something. Until like, it's history. Until it's history. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, they'll probably keep on doing it until something else happens. And then we're gonna read those names. Right. Gosh, so that's a weird thought. It's just like, you know, we, I mean, they say it's 9-11, never forget, right? Yeah. But. It was, you know, there was, there was, a, there was a time before where there was a day that lived in infamy. Right. You know, that's what they called it. Interesting. And we don't read those names anymore. Yeah. And, you know, some of those bodies are still in the bottom of the harbor. They're still there. Gosh, that's so, I had never thought of it that way. So it's just, it's not just about music. It's about, it's about us. Yeah. And like taking responsibility for preserving it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think we we think of ourselves as ambassadors of the art by just continuing to do it, right? Yeah. There are still orchestras. We're still playing Mahler and Brahms. So we are being ambassadors for the art. You still have people that are playing jazz music. And yep. so we're ambassadors for the art. But 
If there was more to do, what do you think that would be? I think they have to probably, I say they, a we, yeah. um, we just have to make it more accessible now. Um, what does that mean what, for you? Well, for the quartet, it was having a video on YouTube. You know, I, I don't know if I have an answer for the orchestras. Um, it's like, how do you, how do you get somebody's who's listening to, you know, pop music today and to have an appreciation for that? It's like, well, they're not going to care if you don't tell them. Right. Exposure would be the first step. Yeah. yeah. They, they're not going to care if they don't know what it is. Yeah. Why would they? They don't know what it is. Yeah. Karen talks about this when she, we were talking about this yesterday. Um, and she, I'm, I'm sure she says it all the time is when there's these musicians that want to do master classes and they want to go out and play these solos and do all these kinds of things, but they don't let anybody know that they want to do this. Right. Then it's not necessarily the fault of the people who are not hiring them that they don't know they want to do those kinds of things. That's an interesting take on maybe the audience does care. And so I think we have our traditional forms of marketing. So you're saying obviously it's coming down to marketing then, right? right? And how you let people know. And we have our traditional forms of doing it. But I think like we've talked about that, the, the landscape has changed. Man, you, you can only reach out to old rich people so much. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're gonna die. Right. They're gonna die and you know, that money's gonna go away. And I think, I don't know, I have this opinion that relying on the same 800 whatever people to continue funding the thing has and can continue to work. But I think relying on people to care about an orchestra because it's an orchestra, specifically an orchestra, um, is, is not necessarily a great plan because right. we- They like, need to care about the music, yeah. not the band. Yeah, and just the idea of having an institution of an orchestra and that we believe that culturally we should have this. You know, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's very true. Like I, I don't disagree with that. But yeah, I just think like I said, the landscape has changed so much and with how people interact with content. Yeah. Uh, and that the music world oftentimes uh, is the furthest behind, you know. We right. just we're the last ones to change. Yeah. Because we have tradition on our side, you know. That we do. And um, it's interesting to think how we could blend. And I think mm -hmm. there are some, I think there are places that are trying. Yeah. But in my opinion, every orchestra should have a podcast, you know, That's interview your idea. members, interview your guest artists, interview your conductors, talk about the pieces you're going to play that weekend. You'll never run out of content. Yeah, exactly. I think, it, I, I think it would be so easy to do, you know, and it's like this, I would say the setup I have here would be not including my computer would be, seven or $800, maybe. It's nothing. Right, and a budget of $6 million, it's like it's nothing. So to have this kind of setup, and like every week you could talk about what you're playing, some interesting stuff. It would be a more interactive form of program notes, right? Yep. It would be a way that people can digest it in a way that's meaningful to our community now. Get people excited about yeah. actually putting their butt in a seat. And especially younger people who are listening to podcasts, you know, mm -hmm. if you want to reach them. And then, yeah, you could interview guest artists for the length of time. You could just build that into what they do in yeah. that week, you know? I, I think there's- That's a great idea. Yeah. I just, I think every orchestra should have that because it's it's meeting our culture a little bit with where we're at. Right. You know, instead of saying, you got to come all the way. Yeah. We well, could, it's like, we're the keeper of the flame, but- you can't see it. <laughs> and like, we don't want to, you know? I think, and I would love your opinion on this. I don't, and I'm sure actually you probably agree with this hundred percent. If you're still, you're not just completely playing just rock tunes. The idea of like the craft deserves respect, right? The, like what, what that music is deserves us not to dumb the thing down, right? Like right. we shouldn't be like, well, let's just play, 
you know, stuff that whatever, like it should be as serious as it is. Yeah, yeah I just think trying it's beautiful to- beautiful music. Yeah, trying to bring the medium to people would be an important part of it. And so they know why. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, man, this was really, really cool. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you, Ryan. Um, it was really cool. There are ways to get in touch with you, I imagine. Yep. How would people do that? Um, I've got an Instagram. It's at Nick underscore Maniacal4, M-A-N-I-A-C-A-L-4, okay. like the number. Um, I've got Instagram. Twitter's the same. Uh, Facebook is facebook.com slash Nick Lawfer, L-A-U-F-E-R. And um, I have a website, nicklawfer.com. So, and uh, you can find me in Nashville. Yeah, for, if you, for, uh, for the off season. I'm sure uh, I, I'm not just going to put this on you, so you're welcome to say don't do this. But uh, I'm sure for people out there who have potential chamber group ideas or would like to bounce some ideas off of you, like, do you feel like you could be a resource for people? I'm happy to receive any any queries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I would. I mean, for a guy who clearly has had such a varied career. Um, you know, if you're somebody out there and you're thinking, I'd like to start a group, but I need some help or something like that. What I've learned is we should talk to people who are relative or if not experts, right? Yep. Like, I don't know if we would all consider ourselves experts considering how much we know we can still grow, but there are people who are further along on the chain than we are. And sure. uh, trying to use those resources is a good thing. And that's well, a good thing. If you're on chapter one, you know, try and find somebody on chapter 30. Yeah. And, um, they're, they're still reading too. But yeah, exactly. Chapter 30. Trying to find people that are willing to, to, to help us out. Um, I just think it's something I've come come into, you know, people are, are helping me out with this podcast and what I've learned. And I just have seen the benefit of it. So knowing that you could be there for others is I think something that sh people should take advantage of if they can. It'd be my pleasure. If you want to get in touch with me, I would, oh, there's that train again. Yeah, he's coming to town. Yeah. Uh, he wants to get his word in. If you're in touch with me, uh, I have a website, that'snotspit.com. I also have uh, Instagram and Facebook. Search at That's Not Spit. Uh, if you want to go ahead and leave a review and a rating on iTunes, that would be pretty cool. I would really appreciate it. I would like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode and making it sound so great. And finally, I would like to thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time. let it just gonna let the train choo choo its way out of town I'm just gonna leave this on here <laughs> <laughs>